All right, good evening. It's good to be back at Joyland. Best name of a church ever. Okay, uh, I want to thank Jen for praying, but I'd like to pray again. Just a moment, if you just... Uh, let's just wait on the Lord for a minute or two and get in agreement with what he has for this evening. Thank you, Lord. You know, my prayer life has been tremendously transformed in the last couple of years. I really don't pray anymore by, by, I guess, standard Western charismatic uh, structure. Um, a few years ago, I was actually still in Minneapolis, and I went out one day to pray, and, and I've always spent a lot of time with the Lord. I've always prayer walked, I mean, it, every day, prayer walk done it for years, and I like to listen, just go out and listen, but I I went out that day and I said, Lord, there's so much going on in my life that I need to talk to you about. I need help with so many things, but I'm just, I just don't have it in me to kind of, you know, go the classic, classic charismania route here. I just don't have the strength, so I'm going to, I'm just going to shut up. I'm not going to do anything until I hear from you. And about an hour went by. And I hadn't heard a thing. And, uh, and then about another half hour went by. And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking of everything. <laughs> but God, and I mean, what am I going to have for dinner that night? When's the last time my vehicle had an oil change? How are the Vikings going to do this season? And I'm trying to cast all these thoughts down because I'm just trying to listen. And then all of a sudden he starts to speak and it's really intimate. It's really personal. And I find myself caught up with him for the next couple hours. And it felt like it was 10 minutes, but it was a couple hours. And he didn't mention one thing that I'd hoped he would. He didn't address any of the issues in my life. He didn't address any of the most pressing concerns any of it. But, at the, but when I was done, I was, I felt as close to him as I had felt in years. There was just something about it. So I went out the next day. I said, Lord, I'm, you know, you know what's going on with me. I'm just going to wait on you. And this time it only took about a half hour and he started talking. And I was out there about three hours just listening. And after a while, I realized I haven't prayed in months. Not in the classic, you know, uh, here's the problem, God. Here's a scripture that says it's the solution. And now would you please fix my problem since? Again, it's not that I, I still, there are times where I still do that. It's how the Spirit leads. But for the most part, and, I'm, and of course, I'm not abandoning any, any uh, uh, appreciation or, or, or of the Scripture or seeing it as any less of a resource than it is. Of course not. I mean, I'm in the Word every day, basically. But things have changed for me, and... Um, probably get into a little bit of that tonight. I actually didn't even intend to talk this much about it, but I am teaching here tonight and next Friday. And then a week from tomorrow, we're going to do a kind of a afternoon or morning. We still haven't never landed on a time. Little workshop, healing workshop. And the emphasis on that is going to be ministering in, by the Spirit of God, and my, I'll probably use healing as the example because that's been my heart for a long time and, and it's what I'm involved in quite a bit. But, but this will apply you know, to anything, the prophetic, just anything we feel we're called to do in God, you know, just demonstrating the power of God, listening to God, 
But instead of kind of coming from the, again, kind of classic Western charismania perspective, we're going we're gonna to just come from, we're children of God. We're going to kind of come from the, the perspective of doing it all through the filter of having our eyes on the Father and, and coming from the place of, of honoring him and, and ministering from his place of love, which has become a, a big thing for me in the last few years. So, uh, okay. Well, now that that's done, I actually that had, I guess we'll just call that the intro, and I, I know I have to watch my time. Um, I'd like to get some input on a few things. I've been pondering church history as of late and what the body of Christ is in its current state, particularly in the Western church. And is it reflecting the heart of God, the heart of the Father for what what he would like it to be? And... And I, I want to start by asking you this, and, and I would like some input. I, I know we've got one of these mic things, and, and, uh, and I would like to get some input. Um, not you too, Ronnie. I mean, I know you're usually really reluctant, but I want you to get over your, your shyness. Um, I just I want to run us through some well, let me, let me first ask this question. Do you believe that in the message, in the gospel message, there actually is, above all else, something God wants us to understand? Not just in this life, but maybe something that will even be reflected, you know, on the other side of this life for all eternity. Is there, is there an ultimate truth? Is there a, a greatest truth? See, I think there is. I really do. In, in John 17, Jesus, this is right before going to the cross, he's speaking to the Father, and he says something that's only recorded once in the Gospels. And he said, this is eternal life. He said this only once. So we probably pay attention. He said, this is eternal life. In our vernacular, we'd probably say this is the meaning of life. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. One sentence, one truth, right? Period, full stop. This is eternal life. And I... I, in studying that out, I, I noticed that in that sentence, um, the word know is the Greek word genosko. I know that's come up on your radar. And it's the same word that he used in John 10, 14, and 15 when he said, these are the words of Jesus, I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, just think about that. What is he saying there? I mean, do we have a grid for that? Do any of us sitting here tonight know Jesus with the same knowledge, intimacy, and love that exists between him and the Father and has inside and outside of time? I'm going to say no. At least I don't. Okay? And yet, that's what he said. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. This is kind of, for me, this is one of those greater works shall you do kind of deals, you know, things that Jesus said where it's like, yeah, I, you said it, I believe it because you said it, but I'm not seeing it, and I haven't seen it yet. I mean, how many convoluted teachings, honestly, have we heard on the whole 
greater works shall you do. I've, I've, I mean, everyone, I have so many pastors want to like make that true in their life. Just, well, this is what he really meant here. And this is, this is actually about the collective body of Christ. Or, or this is, you know, we, we shouldn't have to manipulate scripture to make it work. It's either true or it's not. Okay? Neither is true or it's not. You know, Jesus said, I know, um, said my, um, how do you say it? What is it? Uh, John 10, 27. Uh, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You know, again, a statement of communication, of intimacy, of knowing God. And for me, this is just something that can't be ignored. And ultimately for me, when I look at what Jesus declares as the meaning of life, and I look at the things he's done through the cross to bring us into perfect union with him, to enable this kind of relationship, I end up at the conclusion that that what God wants for us above all else is actually quite simplistic in nature in that he simply wants relationship solely for the purpose of relationship. God is about relationship, and he always has been. I mean, before the worlds were formed, right? Before anything was created, before he was known as creator, God, being love and love requiring relationship, was relational. Who was he in relationship with? Well, he's monotheistic, and yet he's triune, so he was in relationship, the Father with the Son, in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And he has been that way infinitely. God above all else is relationship. And if you actually want to take that just a bit farther and, you know, let yourself think even, you know, allow yourself to go deeper into it. Above all else, what the Trinity represents is family. The Trinity represents family. You got a father, you got a son in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And I won't get into the whole female gender pronoun of the Holy Spirit right now, but it's family and it's always been family. And it's from a family mindset that God, the Trinity, created man. Not because he needed us in any form or fashion. The Trinity has always been perfect in self-sustaining love. In and of himself. God needs nothing. But out of the overflow of his love, we were created why? To be part of his family. This is the supreme truth. Why is it so easy for people to think of the other side of this life, to think of heaven, to think of, you know, life and eternity, and see themselves in a relationship with God that is, that is you know, loving and peaceful and joyous and flawless and and, you know, yes, he is our father, and Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but he's our big brother, and everything, you know, is wonderful there. But why can't we see it in this life? Why aren't we living in this life exactly the way we'll be living in eternity? Why aren't, and I mean that sincerely, why aren't we? Yes, there are aspects of this life, you know, now we see through a glass darkly. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You know, there is a, there is a little bit of a, a, a simplicity, a lack of full context in terms of the relationship we'll have with God once we get our glorified bodies. But is it a glorified body that gives us perfect relationship with him? Or is it perfect union through Jesus Christ that gives us perfect relationship with him right now? 
You see, we're as close to God right now in our oneness with him as we will ever be. We're as close to him right now in perfect union with him as we will be for all eternity. You know, we're not going to get to the pearly gates and have Peter hold us back while Jesus is re-crucified so we can get something we don't have now in terms of union with him that we'll have for eternity. We're already there. We're already there. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. I didn't make that up. That's 1 Corinthians 16. How can we be any closer to God than we are if we're one spirit with him? And then we have the classic Jesus talking to his disciples, John 14, 20. In that day, you will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So what do we do with that? You know, before I started a couple years ago, just kind of going off on my drift off in the spirit realm, I had actually for a number of years been leaning into and seeking the Lord and listening to the Lord on things pertaining to union, this perfect union. Because it's just struck me, if we're in perfect union, there are aspects of my relationship with him that should be manifesting different things in my life. I just seem to be coming up short, at least by my estimation. And then I started to see that while I was, while I believed in the idea of perfect union with him and what that should avail me, I still wasn't taking like actual ownership of it, like in my identity in my identity as a, as a child of God, as a son of God. And so I started seeking the Lord on that as well. And of course, there was other things that I, I kind of looked at in this process, including the early church. started just almost as a curiosity, but, but also I saw a tie-in. I started looking at the early church and what they believed. And they went through a lot of rough patches, but particularly in the, in the fourth century, after dealing with heresy upon heresy and all kinds of issues, getting the Bible canonized and big arguments between the church in Rome and that in Constantinople and Alexandria and all these things, they came together and they sorted some things out. They came together in, in 325 A.D. in Nicaea, and then in 381 in, in Constantinople, and they came up with this creed, and it was all about the Trinity and how we are one with God. And it put the church in order for an extended period of time. Now, unfortunately, man, who just simply can't resist mucking up that which doesn't need to be mucked up, then managed to screw everything up over the next thousand years or so. But that's another story. But the point is, in church history, we've seen moments where I believe the, the true gospel and the, the highest purpose or greatest truth of, the, of what God intended was exhibited. It just hasn't been that way for a long time. Because if you tell most people in most churches on a Sunday morning that God's greatest desire for them is to know his love as their greatest truth, they will look at you like you're from another planet. If you tell people, you go from most pulpits, and I'm sorry, and I'm not, I'm not trying to gratuitously uh, be anti-organized religion, but, but you tell people that their highest purpose, highest purpose, 
is to receive the love of God and give it in return. And again, blank stares. You know, even in charismatic circles where the, the, the press into worship is, is, is more uh, personal and intimate, where, you know, the, there's an openness to the things of the Spirit. Even in the, in the most, uh, again, you know, Spirit-led of churches, at least in many, I, I want to be careful, in a significant percentage of churches, there is still, to some degree, a lack of understanding of the kind of intimacy that God wants to engage in in our lives on a daily basis. A lot of people simply don't understand how personal their lives with God can be. They just don't. I didn't. I mean, I went for years. I was pastoring, and I didn't think that what I understand now was possible. I was just trying to follow all the, you know, the charismatic cultural rules of the day and do my best for my people as I could. But this thing has always been about personal relationship. And again, there, that's an idea that, it, I mean, God, it just gets so much lip service. You know, calling people forward for altar calls, you know, in any kind of church, a fundamentalist church, evangelical, whatever, God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Yes, that phrase is conveyed. We say God wants, what do we tell people? God loves you. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. And yet what we think that actually looks like is so far from what he intends. I mean, we are, are to consistently be hearing the voice of God. We are consistently to be spending time with him, losing ourselves in him. Again, simply relationship for the sake of relationship. No agendas, no conditions, no demands, no qualifiers. Just hanging out with God for the purpose of hanging out with God. I mean, it really is love solely for the purpose of love. That's what it is. But our culture is such that we, we don't think, first off, we don't think, most people don't even grasp how deep they can how deeply they can know the Lord. And then even for people who have an idea that that might be possible, there's this immediate set of barriers they have in their lives, real or imagined, that keep them from doing so. I've got this full-time job. I've got these kids. I've, you know, I play softball in the summer, and I ski in the winter, and you know, I've taken up painting, and I'm da-da-da-da-da. Hey, which is fine. God, you know, got to live, got to eat, whatever. But you notice people, no matter, almost, almost whatever their circumstance is, always find a way on some level to do what they really want to do. If you got it in your heart, you'll figure out a way to do it. When I was a little kid, my dad just, he's like, I'm not taking, I always wanted to go skiing. My dad's like, you find, get a ride somewhere else. Get a ride, I'm like nine years old. But I like hustled, I, I built a network of friends who skied, and I created like a carpool schedule for parents, and bless God, I got out there skiing two to three times a week. Because that was in my heart. A little savvy nine-year-old. But is what Jesus said in John 10, 14, and 15 possible? 
I mean, can we know him? <laughs> See and the Father know each other? Well, think about what John wrote in 1 John 5.20. He said, this is what he wrote. The Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him. Now, there's that genosco word. We may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the one true God. And this is, I love this confirmation from John, this is eternal life. Right, what, what is he saying? He's saying right now we are hardwired to have this relationship. The life we are called to live, our ultimate purpose in being is the same both for the here and the hereafter. There's no distinction. And in my last few years of just losing myself in countless hours on an almost daily basis in the things of the Lord, I've gotten to a place where like this life and eternity has really begun to blur. Now, obviously, I'm still in, I've got control of my faculties. I'm sure that raised a few eyebrows. But I'm telling you, spend enough time with God, and what happens is there is this tremendous blurring of, in distinction, of distinction between this kind of natural temporal life we're tooling along in right now and who we already are in Christ as his children. Brothers and sisters, we're already eternal. You're eternal. You're as eternal as you're going to be. You're not going to die and then be re-resurrected and made eternal in a new way. You're eternal. I mean, you know, an uh, errant missile from uh, Russia lands here right now. Uh, it have to be a long-range Hummer, but misses Ukraine and lands on us. We don't miss a beat. We don't miss a beat. And here's another thing to consider. We should be so comfortable with the reality of who we are. And next Friday, we're going to get more into the intimacy of this and kind of the structure of family and being a kid and him being dad. But, um, but you know, let's say that missile did hit right now and we shot to the other side of this life. You know, in, in kind of classic religious circles for years, decades, we've heard, oh, you know, I've, it's going to be so amazing, and I'm not going to know what to do, and it's just going to be so overwhelming, and, you know, it's like, you know, unicorns and kittens and rainbows, and I just want to find Jesus and fall at his feet, and it's going to take thousands of years to figure out what's going on. Let me tell you something. If we're living right with him now, and we step into eternity, the first, the first realization we have in the first millisecond should be, this is the most comfortable I've ever been in my life. I'm home. I'm home. Daddy, I'm home. Yeah, is it going to be cool? Of course it is. Is it going to be a blowaway? Yeah, it's going to be a blowaway. But it's going to feel more real, more like home. You're going to connect in your identity with it. It's going, to, it's going to be so natural, it's going to be seamless. That's because our union is perfect with him now. By the way, there's not one thing in my notes for tonight that has anything to do with what we're talking about and talked about. Didn't even come close. Always does that to me. But this is what it is. This is what it is. And the body of Christ has spent decades living below the standard of relationship we're actually capable of. And God is not withholding anything from us that would 
make that more possible than it is. I mean, brothers and sisters, we're there. We just have to stop believing that we're not. We've already arrived. And it's, it's really that simple. You know, I, I did mention church history, and I, I just I want to touch on a couple things uh, about that because it's, it's, to me at least, it's pretty shocking. So I just, I'm going to just take us, we're going to do a quick spin through starting with the early church. Actually, let's start with the, the Bible. Do you know how long it took for the early church fathers to f- agree like on what this was supposed to be? It's estimated anywhere from three to 500 years. And at the cost of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of broken relationships. One example was the Eastern Church, again, which comprised Alexandria and Constantinople and Antioch. We're always coming up against the church in Rome theologically, different things, but like the Eastern Church didn't think the book of Revelation should be part of the canonized scripture. Church in Rome didn't think Hebrews should be. And they just went at it and went at it and went at it for years. They couldn't get an agreement. They couldn't get an agreement on 2 Peter. They couldn't get an agreement on Jude. You know, the Bible, you remember like in the 70s, the commercials where everyone, I don't know what it would be for, like, I don't know, some diaper rash product or something, but they'd show, like, I remember commercials where they'd bring a baby in a stork, and the stork would be flapping, and the little baby would be in the, you know. I think a lot of people think that's how we got the Bible, just came by a stork. Just one day we had the Bible. This thing was a, a slugfest. And there's actually, you know, if you look at the Catholic Bible, it's significantly different than the Protestant. And then there's the Coptic Christian and the Oriental Orthodox and et cetera, et cetera. There, I mean, Martin Luther shoved James and Second Peter and a couple other things he called them hetero, hetero orthodox, I believe, and he put them in the. He had his own uh, version of the Bible, and he rearranged them according to what he thought was. Well, he many people say he didn't even think James should be in the Bible. So the point is, there's been some disagreements, and things have had to be sorted out. Thus, we ended up with, fortunately, councils of godly men like in Nicaea and Constantinople, putting together creeds and other things that we could follow, and we even draw from now. Up until the 5th century, for instance, there was only one church. There wasn't the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church. or the. It was just the church. And then again, comprising that area, you know, kind of Western Europe and Eastern Asia and that sort of thing. And then the church in Rome started asserting kind of this idea of the Pope and that all authority would ultimately, all authority, instead of calling together the leaders as they would, they would do frequently, would, would have to, all, final authority would be from a pope. It was really in about the 5th to 6th century that that got locked in, okay? Well, then the Eastern Church said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not giving you final authority. It's been working the way, it's been working fine the way we've been doing it. The church in Rome dug in its heels, and the Eastern Church started backing away. And for the next 500 years, until about 1000 AD, they kept strong affiliation. They kind of considered themselves to be under one umbrella of doctrine, but there was disagreements going on. And during that time, what we know as the Catholic Church started becoming a bit more corrupt a bit more about aligning itself with whatever governmental powers that were, that were to be or in power at the time. And finally, in 
1065 AD, the Eastern Church said, that's it, we're done, we're out of here, and they formed what we now know as the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so off they go to the races. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church at this time, they're still rocking it. They're still, like the main dynamic they're focused on is what came out of the, the, the uh, Constantinople and, and Nicene um, Creed. They're, they're pushing the Trinity. I mean, they're all about it. They've got this thing going on in terms of relationship with the Father and, and understanding who we are in Christ. But even, of course, because man just can't leave well enough alone, they got to start adding some stuff. You got to start adding some traditions and some other things, some ceremonies. Now we got to change our clothes a little bit here. We got to get some better, we got to get good robes. And they started getting into things like, like, well, it's called veneration you know, of Mary, and then veneration of the saints, and veneration of icons, and veneration of relics. You know, they started collecting the bones of old, of apostles. You know, we, this, is the, this is the head of St. Peter, and they bring it out and hold it up, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And they started losing their way. And by the time uh, of the Reformation... The Catholic Church was completely gone. I mean, they were just, all they were about is essentially working with the governments and the, the royal families uh, to maintain feudalism. That is just the oppression of the peasants. Um, and the, the corruption that was going on in the, in the Catholic Church at that time was staggering. And the Eastern Orthodox were doing all right, but they had gotten lost in ceremony. And then along comes Martin Luther. And he's, he's pretty sharp. And he recognizes this whole saved by, you know, by grace. It's our faith in Christ, and it's not through works. And, and uh, he's getting traction with this, right? But then John Calvin pops up, and he grabs a big slice of Martin Luther's pie, and he's, he's an angry lawyer. He's an angry guy, and he sees an angry God. And he comes up with this whole thing that man is completely depraved and God is terminally pissed off and that only, you know, double predestination. God's already decided if you're going to heaven or hell and there's not a thing you can do about it. And from that, other denominations started to come forth that were Protestant in nature, Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, um, uh, that's the Puritans got their launch. And they were all Calvinists. Now, let's just stop for a moment in time with Calvin and Luther. We're probably 1500s here, 1525. And let's look back about 1200, 1300 years. Where anywhere in all of that anywhere in all of that church history. And this is what's influencing people. And people have got to listen to those in power, those in ministry, because nobody, nobody has a Bible and nobody knows how to read. So you got to, if you want to hear about God, you got to go to the local God peddler and trust that what he's saying is the truth because you got nothing to compare it to. Where in, and I could go, and I should probably have gone, I could go more into it, but I could, I'll say it this way. Essentially, from the 4th century on to the 16th century, the emphasis of John 10, 14, and 15, the idea of us being in Christ and, and Christ in us, as a matter of fact, that was actually considered blasphemy uh, in, um, as a matter of fact, it was the, Puritans who first really started emphasizing that and actually were martyred for it. Puritans were martyred for declaring that Christ was within us. I mean, the what I'm trying to say is the church was a disaster. And it wasn't putting first things first. And then even as Protestantism grew and, you know, John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, you know, and 
Lutheran church got established, it was still, the focus for all these churches was still on the wretchedness of man, on man's sinful being. And the primary message was always, you got to get right with God because he's a wrathful God, and you're going to fry in hell if you don't. This is the message of the church. And, and forget about, like, you know, the eastern part of the hemisphere, you know, the unchurched in, in you know, Asia, who you know, been operating in Hinduism and Taoism for centuries. I mean, at what point in any of this time was there actual the light of the gospel coming forth? We don't realize, but the church is basically the church, but the body of Christ, I mean, we have just been, we have been denied for centuries. Basically, since the church's inception, the real gospel. Well, why is that important? You'd wonder at some point, you know, if God's, you know, and this is what confuses me. It's like, you sent your son to die the most horrific death to save us, to bring us these great truths. How are you looking at the last, you know, the first 1,500 years of the church and not be completely torqued off? I mean, where, how, why didn't, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, resend Elijah or something. But write the damn ship, right? Sorry, write the ship. Um, I mean, the thing is a mess. And it stays a mess. And I, you know, I never realized, truly, I never grasped until recently the effect that Azusa Street had on the Western church and how impactful it was. Because what I didn't realize is with just a few exceptions, like the Quaker Shakers and few others, there was no functioning of the Holy Spirit really in the church. Again, there are exceptions. You know, you had the mystics. You had the, you know, people living in caves and whatever. But in terms of appeal, you know, mass cultural appeal, we didn't even have a functioning of the Holy Spirit in the church really until Azusa Street in 1905. 0506, whenever. And, and God bless William Seymour. He rocked that place for about 10 years. And it was from there that people were like, well, let's, let's you know, mass produce this, so to speak. And that's where you got the assemblies of God and other charismatic streams started coming forth. And we've only had churches that were open to the things of the Spirit for about 100 years. I don't wonder what the Lord, I mean, it's like, really, God? So my question to you is, if there still really is an authentic gospel message, and it really is that above all else, both now and for eternity, he wants to be relational with us. He wants to be our father. Behold, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, right? If that's still, I mean, has he changed his mind? Has he become any less within the Trinity, the, the, uh, the family or the family that he is? Has, he ch- has anything changed? Well, then what's going on? What's the problem? When are we going to start seeing not just mystics and hermits living in caves demonstrating intimate familial relationship with him? But when is this going to go mainstream? When are people going to stand up in denominational churches and go, you know, I think we may have been a bit off the mark here. The cross wasn't so much a matter, it wasn't so much a reflection of our sin as a reflection of our value. Huh. Maybe we don't have to do repentance, get resaved altar calls every Sunday. 
maybe we can believe that God is a good God. Maybe we can believe that he really not only wants to be a father to us, but actually, maybe he's been fathering us all along, and we've just been too frickin' dense to grasp that. Huh. Maybe there's more to this. You see, I think there is more to this. I think there's a whole lot more to this. And I think there's a whole lot more to come. And I don't say that as one of these obnoxious prophets who every year, every decade, call forth some change or revival that absolutely never appears because it's almost always birthed from anything but the Spirit of God. But I'm, my rationality, my belief in a, in a reformation, in a revival where this is actually the reality and truth that comes forth and transforms things. And believe me, we need transformation because the church, as we know, if you just let me rabbit trail real quick, is going down in flames and going down hard. Uh, millennials and, and Gen Zs are now attending church at the same level that we've seen in Western Europe for, or for decades, which means they're not going. There's like 3% of millennials and Gen Zs go to church with regularity. The church is dying in the mainstream with the youth, those who will be taking over. They, they want nothing to do with church. And can you blame them? What does church give them that they don't already have in their phone, at least in their mind? And why is that? Because there, ha there hasn't been the true gospel proclaimed, and the true gospel is relationship. It's not a series of laws or regulations to follow. And I don't care whether you're a fundamentalist or you're a charismaniac. Got to strip this thing down. I do believe that God is bringing forth the reality of John 10, 14, and 15. I mean, consider Paul Young and the shack. When that book came out, people were apoplectic. It's like, they, this guy's a heretic. I mean, people blew head pipes over, over that guy's book. I mean, I remember trying to read it, and I was utterly bewildered. It even went against, you know, my charismatic. I mean, I'm all, you know, Mr. Mr. Word of Faith. I'm like, what? But man, what was he getting at? He's getting at the love of the Father. He's getting at a love that passes all understanding. And other people started popping up. You know, there's, there's life to this. There's truth to this. And God is directing us to this. <laughs> the irony is he's never stopped directing us to this. The theoretical uh, physicist Richard Feynman, he said, um, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And what I like about Larry and Joyland and what I esteem in each and every one of you is for years now, you haven't been afraid to ask questions even when you're not sure what the answer is. You see, that's how we actually get somewhere. And that's how Richard Feynman ended up being one of the greatest physicists of all time. The point is, let's take a look at the church, the last 2,000 years of the church, and recognize that even for the best of attentions, you know, the Catholics, man, they love their sacraments and, you know, the Calvinists, they're all about the sovereignty of God. And, you know, 
Baptists, well, that's just, that's just salvation, whatever. They're, you know, they're well-intended, let's say. Let's, I mean, please cut them more slack than I certainly have tonight. Um, but let's also agree in a spirit of love church has come up pretty short. If we're really supposed to be about intimacy with the Father and Jesus is our loving big brother we hang out with, then church has really come up short. It doesn't have to be that way. I believe it is changing. So let's keep pressing in like we're going to do next Friday when we're really going to trip the light fantastic dive into some deep stuff about this. So, um, I'm six minutes over. I'm going to say thank you. Thank you for listening and pondering. And I hope you'll take even things that you may have disagreed with or at least been possibly offensively puzzled by and at least take him to the Lord. Just be a spiritual Richard Feynman. And we'll, uh, we'll take another shot at this next Friday. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, you know, it says you're coming for a bride uh, without spot or wrinkle. And maybe in light of tonight's examination of things, we're possibly not there yet. Um, but God, we want to be there. We want to be there and... You've made clear we can be there because everything we need, we already have because of our perfection of union with you. So, Lord, continue to grow things relationally within us that draw us closer to you and make your truth the greatest truth in our lives. Thank you, Father. Amen. 